Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hey everyone, welcome. Today I'm talking with Britt East, author of A Gay Man's Guide to Life, a no-nonsense guide to living honestly and openly by developing the skills and wisdom necessary to realize your dreams. But before we get started, here is the inside scoop on Britt. Britt East is an author and speaker who uses his experience, strength, and hope to challenge and inspire change-oriented gay men to get down to the business of improving their lives. With over two decades of personal growth and development experience in a variety of modalities, such as the 12 steps, nonviolent communication, yoga, meditation, talk therapy, and the Hoffman process, Britt is committed to building a personal practice of self-discovery that he can then share with gay men everywhere. He lives in Seattle with his husband and their crazy dog. You can learn more about Britt East and his work by visiting his website at BrittEast.com. Well, hi, Britt. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So what is your book, A Gay Man's Guide to Life, all about? So I wanted to write a book that was part memoir to tell my story and share that with the world. But it felt, you know, I've been thinking about this project for years and years, and making it purely a memoir did not feel right with me. It just did Mm. not sit right for some reason. Mm. And I mean, it felt a little bit like prostituting my pain in a way. Um, As harsh as that might sound, there's a certain social currency that seems to have evolved in the memoir genre, where the more blood you spill on the page, the more, you know, um, kind of uh, credibility you build. And I just, I didn't want to do that. All the people in my book are still walking the planet, and Mm -hmm. I wanted to preserve their dignity and anonymity. And so I did not want that to be front and center. And I struggled with it for years on how to do it. And I just kept putting it off and off. And I was working with a life coach a couple of years ago who helped me flip the script and realized that by putting the reader at the center of the story, that I could make them the hero. Mm -hmm. And I could make it all about a manual for life. I could make it about their wisdom, their knowledge, their insights, and just weave my personal narrative in as a way to add context and build rapport and some credibility as opposed to me centering myself in the book. And so what the book came out as is this kind of this equal parts personal story, personal journey that's very raw and real, but also maybe even mainly a series of tried and true recommendations and and kind of kitchen table wisdom for anybody who could use a, a leg up in life, and most particularly gay men. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that approach, because it is, it's unique, for one, I think. And I get what you're saying about the memoir field today about, I mean, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction, and the stranger your yeah. story, the more books you sell, you know, and yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> So when you turned the script around, did the writing flow from there? Did you know, did you have a clearer idea of what you wanted your project to look like? Yeah, you know, I've been a writer my entire life. I'm a natural writer. I had full confidence in my voice and my ability to tell my story. I've been telling my story for 20 years mm. in a variety of formats. But where what I've never done is write a book. 
And so I was nervous about my capacity to generate all these words. My background is more poetry, mm. a highly distilled version of writing, um, <laughs> highly structured. And so I was smart enough to realize that because this was my first book, I would need a little extra help. And so what I did is I built a really strong frame for the project. Mm -hmm. I tend to be really logical and linear anyway. But in this case, I kind of went nuts because I thought that (laughs) frame would support me and just help the energy flow. And that's exactly what happened. And so what it meant was that the project was just effortless. Mm. I created such a strong frame for it. I had so much support for it. Um, from various sources, uh, various people that once I sat down to write, it just flowed. And I mean, I probably wrote the entire book in six months and then did another six months of editing. And it just, after sitting on it for 20 years and letting it gestate and percolate and marinate in my body and my soul, my spirit, it was just ready to be born. Yeah, that's that's amazing. It was ready to come out. I love that. Yeah. yeah. So... Can you share a little bit about your personal experience, like what it was like for you growing up? And Yeah, I I grew up in 1980s Tennessee, which was no joke for a queer person. Mm. It was rough. I am sure that there was a vibrant underground gay scene at that point, given the um, music industry, the entertainment industry there. But as a young person, I had no access to that. Right. And what I think a lot of straight people may not realize is that even the most well-intended parents, if they're straight, um, in most cases, don't think or struggle with at least to raise culturally gay children. Mm-hmm. They might be open and affirming, but that's not enough. Yeah. Um, and in, and in my in my circumstance, I didn't even have that. So I was living with all of the bigotry foisted on me by straight people in society then that was magnified and amplified by my family. And then on top of that, I had just a good old fashioned uh, heaping of uh, child abuse. So all of this kind of went into a single cauldron and led me to this intense feeling of isolation that I had this overriding sense that anything I would be in this world, I would have to make with my own two hands. And because I was steeped in this, cauldron of cruelty, I did everything wrong. I did not have the foundation or life skills to make good choices. Mm -hmm. And it took my life completely collapsing in my mid-20s for me to finally get the help that I needed and deserved and build the life that I was always meant to lead. Yeah, it's funny how, I mean, we have to, like, using some uh, 12-step terminology, we have to get to rock bottom before we can start to to rebuild. Exactly. You know, you you were talking about growing up in the South. And and to me, that conjures up uh, images of really extreme uh, racism and bigotry and and homophobia. Uh, Did you find that to be a part of your experience? Well, I am a white person. And so I think that it is incumbent upon white people to acknowledge our own participation in all the various systems that perpetuate racism, bias, and stigma. There are all sorts of stories and caricatures that we as a nation have about the South for very good reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, But I believe anti-Blackness in particular is universal and something that has to be fought everywhere, not just the South. 
Mm-hmm. So I actually, I went to a highly in- integrated school. I went to a special school. It was called a magnet school, which means it attracted people, students from all walks of life. And it had um, um, such a high degree of diversity, I suspect that was done programmatically. I don't know because I was a young person, but I suspect mm-hmm. that was done programmatically. But what that did was it it instilled the sense of comfort in me with different races from an early age. And that is what is lacking so often in children, just that sheer exposure that would help children resist the bias and stigma of their parents, their family and society at whole. Yeah. So I believe that, you know, let me frame it from my own lived experience as a gay person in a world steeped in straight supremacy we all make homophobic choices from time to time, even gay people. And so I suspect that people of color might see race in a similar light. How could we not experience and contribute to bias and stigma and racism, if only unwittingly? Mm -hmm. And so we have to daily make it a daily practice to resist and act against in lots of little ways while we are also, especially as white people, while we are also dismantling the structures that perpetuate this racism. Yeah. You know, I almost, I want to classify people into two different groups, you know, those that are admittedly racist and or homophobic, and and those that don't know any better. I mean, clearly, there are people that embrace being racist for whatever reason. Um, but then I feel like there is this whole other group that denies being racist or homophobic, even though they really may be. I mean, for instance, um, having gay friends doesn't mean you aren't homophobic. Having black friends doesn't mean you aren't racist. Do you think that there are people that don't know that they have a bias? Absolutely. And here's how I frame it. And again, because I don't have lived experience in mm-hmm. a racial minority, I'm going to frame it as a part of a sexual minority I prefer to think of homophobic choices rather than homophobic people. Mm. And that might be a little controversial, but here's what I think it does. I think it simultaneously holds people more accountable for their actions and calls upon them to do better as they know better. It creates the space for grace and the room for redemption that the future, that their personal future is not set in stone that they have the ability, they can afford to do the work of anti-homophobia, of anti-racism to bring it back to your case. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it both holds them more accountable and is simultaneously more forgiving. If we make it about choices and behavior and actions, and I think it even makes it easier to identify. There is nothing that a white person in America would rather think of themselves less than is is being racist. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as you use that word in white America, white America shuts you down. White America cannot afford to hear that word. And I think if we make it about behavior and choices and look at, and we we require of one another the self-reflection and personal inquiry to examine the impact of our choices, the consequences of our behavior and our actions, it's easier, it's more affordable for us to say, oh, wow, I never thought of that. I could do this a little different. I could say that a little differently. I had never thought I was hurting this person or that person. And it could then be a start. That's not the end of the work. That's the beginning of the work. Mm -hmm. I feel like we have so much work to do as a, not only as a country, but I mean, as the whole world. 
Yeah, you know, our culture is so primitive. And what's fascinating is that there's never been anything like the level, the rapid level of acceptance gay people um, have experienced in the past few decades. It is unparalleled in the course of human history. Mm. And it's amazing and wonderful and something to be celebrated. And it also comes with unintended consequences. We have left some people, including ourselves to a certain degree as, as queer people, we have left some people behind. They have not yet caught up the growth has been more than the culture could absorb. And so I feel empathy and generosity for well-meaning straight people who are doing their darndest to love us, but Mm -hmm. might not say everything quite correctly. They might step in a cow pie from time to time. They might put their foot in their mouth. They might have egg on their face. (laughs) I believe we can afford as queer people the generosity to, you know, gently hold the mirror up and love them through that situation, to allow them to love us instead of playing kind of the moral police and, you know, almost like people correcting other people's grammar. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's productive ultimately to go around and correct people's um, attitudes around um, to, to, you know, gay people in a marmish uh, way. I think the most effective way is to allow ourselves to be known as gay people, to stand up and take up space, to stop slinking in the shadows and require people to see us, to witness us, to hear us, and to know us. And over time, our lives are our message. And over time, that will speak louder than any sort of convincing argument or debate we might have on social media. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, basically, we have to normalize it. Yeah, it's it's normalizing. It's all of it. It's normalizing our sexual orientation. It's normalizing our gender expression. It's normalizing our gender orientation. As queer people, we are a big tent. And it's confusing even to us. The terminology is confusing even to us. It's not settled. Um, We still argue about it as a community. So we can't, it's unfair to expect straight people to say it perfectly. Um, The key is the intention behind the expression to stand up tall, take up space and be witnessed and see the reciprocal love in each other's eyes. Yeah. You mentioned the level of acceptance being higher in the last two decades than it's ever been. And I think we're starting to see that now with the youngest generation. Um, I'm reminded of a story my daughter-in-law told me about, about reading a story to a group of uh, preschoolers or, or kindergartners. I'm not sure which. And Actually, I don't even remember what the story was about, but it was obvious after reading the story to this group of children that they didn't even consider gender or race or what constitutes a normal family. And I was just blown away by that. Yeah, bigotry is a learned behavior. And it is it occurs through indoctrination, largely through family programming. And if that fails, society will program it into to, mm. you know, fill the gap. Mm-hmm. And so children come to us as blank slates. They don't come to us with racism baked in or misogyny or homophobia baked in. We teach them that. We indoctrinate them. And there's all sorts of reasons why we do that, largely around capitalism and the patriarchy. Mm. And everything kind of flows out of that. Um, but with if left to their own devices, they, you know, they would never... It would take them generations and generations to recreate those systems of othering. 
And so, you know, it's charming and delightful to witness that behavior because it's so rare Mm -hmm. and almost never experienced in adults unless they have some sort of a disability, a cognitive disability, then they might resemble children in that way. So it's very special to be able to encounter that firsthand. And it's such an important mirror because you realize how distorted, how perverted the course of our society and culture has become. Yeah, yeah. Well, like you said, we have a long way to go. Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, There are many self-help books for gay men in publication. How does A Gay Man's Guide to Life stand out from the crowd? So what's unique about this book is that it covers all the major facets of life. And readers can dip in and out based on their need or their question in any any given moment. Mm. They can read it cover to cover, but they don't need to. Um, there's an audio version available and so they can listen to it from start to finish, but they don't need to, they can home in on the chapter that is most important to them in any given moment and get the insights and wisdom that I had to share on that topic. So I just, like I said earlier, I created a really strong frame. I'm really logical and linear. So I just took each facet of life, like mind, body, spirit, Mm. um, you know, finances, career, family, friends, uh, uh, you know, community service. And I just have a chapter dedicated to each topic. So it makes it really easy to kind of pick and choose what you want to learn. And it's meant to be a manual that you return to over the course of your life because it's not presenting data or novelty all of the wisdom is stuff that you might have learned from your grandmother mm-hmm. or your grandfather. Um, and I wrote it for people who maybe didn't have access to those people, who didn't have the rites of passage, the initiation ceremonies, the rituals to expose them to that kind of wisdom that would prepare them for adulthood. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you if there was a best method to to read or work through your guide, but it's just as you need yeah. it, what you need, as you yeah, need it. Whatever yeah, whatever works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whatever you need, it's, at, you know, it's there for you. It's a tool. It's a manual for you as the reader. I, that's what I liked about it. Again, moving away from the memoir space that is more, you know, start to finish A to Z. This is more like you are centered as the reader. What do you need in this moment? And you pick and choose what you need to experience in a given moment. Is, is there one thing like a, a base point that where people need to start Yeah, so people could and have been starting anywhere in the book, but if I were to chart a course for you, what I would say is start with your own story. So many of us have divorced our adult lives from our shared history, whether it's cultural history, like our shared queer history, or our familial history, and whatever potential intergenerational trauma we may have endured or adverse childhood experiences start to reclaim that story and then find someone that can bear benevolent witness Mm -hmm. so that you can share that story and be emotionally joined in the process. Now, for most people, that's going to be a dollar-driven relationship, like a therapist or a life coach or something along those lines. For some people, it could be a free relationship like in the 12 steps. That's where I got started. Mm -hmm. For other people, it might be friends or family. But I just caution people to find somebody that has the boundaries, training and expertise to really to help you through that journey. It can sometimes be unfair to ask people to fill that void if they're not trained in that way. 
But the main thing is that they bear benevolent witness so you can meet yourself in their eyes. You note that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to your story. Your trauma is not all-encompassing. There really is an end to it. And it doesn't devalue your intrinsic self-worth. When you encounter the empathy in their eyes as they witness and hear and join you in your story, you will be healed. It's inspiring to hear you talk like that. I know you wrote this for the gay man, but I think it would benefit everyone, actually. Yeah. You know, I did a subtle thing with the naming of the book. I did not call it A Guide to Life for Gay Men. Mm. I called it A Gay Man's Guide to Life, meaning I'm the gay man in this equation, and it's a guide to life that I wrote for you, the reader. But Mm. because I'm a gay man and all I have is my lived experience, I'm using our cultural reference points as queer people, our language. So queer people no longer have to do the mental gymnastics that that we've had to do for generations when reading straight literature. Now the straight reader can do those mental gymnastics, but the wisdom is the same. Anybody could read this book and glean all sorts of stuff from it, but it's just I want to make people aware with the naming of the book that it is written through my lens of lived experience as a queer person. Yeah. What do you hope is the biggest takeaway readers get from reading A Gay Man's Guide to Life? What I want readers to learn is that there is no greater form of self-expression than service. And that's really what it's all about. And that service need not be born of fire. It need not be a crucible. It need not be a sack of rocks. It can actually be a form of play. And so I want readers to recover that childish zeal, um, that, that innocence that you referred to earlier, and then learn how to harness and channel their outrage and anger um, in a way that's productive and helpful to people all over the world, wherever they feel moved in whatever they, whatever moment they find themselves in, but to always come from a place of service. And to get there, a lot of box has to be checked first. You don't have to wait till you're perfect to be of service, of course, but there's a lot of personal growth and development work necessary to operate from your highest good and be of your most service. Yeah. And, and it's kind of like you have to start where you are. I mean, I, I liken it to, oh, I don't want to go to a gym until I lose weight. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite sayings is, is from Voltaire, who said, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm, yeah. And I think it goes to that. I think about that saying a lot, maybe even daily, because I think that's something we all struggle with, whether it's coming from a place of comparisons, or it is just a sense of self-sabotage or kind of residual fear from maybe previous trauma that keeps us stuck. I believe in being pragmatic rather than idealistic. And so service is the last chapter in the book, but it's not intended to be the last thing that you do in your life. Mm -hmm. You, I, I really hope that people experience the magic and joy of service all throughout their lives and realize that the more personal growth and development work they do, the more effective and efficient they will be at that service work. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like, um, and of course, like you said earlier, the, the more you give, the more you get, actually. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. really the only way to keep anything is to give it away. Yeah. And, and you hear that in a lot of different uh, concepts, but it's, it's mm-hmm. universal. <laughs> yeah. It is. 
I'm curious, uh, what kind of feedback have you received from your reading audience so far? I get a lot of amazing notes from all over the world, folks from all different age groups. I mean, I get dozens of letters each day that are heartrending and touching um, guys coming out of the closet in their 60s, 70s, 80s was shocking to me. Wow. Um, you know, guys that have struggled with coming out maybe in their 20s and 30s, and this is not a coming out manual, mm-hmm. but what it does do is when you, if you're a young person and you are called to bear the consequences of coming out in particular nasty ways, involving economic security, physical safety, this book can help fill in the gaps and help Mm. give you a leg up in life. If you're an older person who is more settled in life and more self-sustaining, this book can help you understand maybe why your life went the way it did Mm. and can be a point of self-empathy for you to learn to love yourself a little bit more deeply. And those are the letters I tend to get by and large. They're very touching and humbling. Do you ever get overwhelmed reading them? Absolutely. I, I feel, but so the way that I work is through that kind of hollow read metaphor where I, something just passes through me. These words just almost happen to me. I feel like it's more dictation than writing. Mm. Now the editing process is grueling and, you know, the sales and marketing is grueling and the shaping of the book is grueling, but the writing itself happens very quickly and freely for me. And so I'm in awe of it because it feels almost like I'm barely participating. Mm. And I'm not a particularly religious person. So that just compounds the mystery for me personally. And so I am deeply moved by the impact the book has because I feel like it comes from a source that wasn't all mine. And so I feel humbled by that greater source. And I feel honored that I was able to tap into it and hone it into something that people could buy and wanted to to sit with. And um, most importantly, just so humbled by all the various journeys and the flavors of people around the world and all the different states of being and ways of being and life journeys that people have had. And it's absolutely beautiful. and, And it's been such an honor to hear from them. Yeah, I think you're getting that kind of response because I don't know, to me, it's clear that you're writing from your heart and uh, it's something that you genuinely care about. I mean, readers uh, know when you're being um, fed something, so to speak, and, and when something is genuine. I think um, that's, that's easy. I think so, too. Yeah. I think so, too. There's an intuitive sense, I think, that even lay people have that maybe haven't studied literature, but they just know when they're being sold something. And I mean, I wasn't trying to sell anybody anything in this book. I was just speaking my truth and telling my story and then kind of like let the chips fall where they may. And I've just been delighted that some people have found it useful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the things you are doing to get the word out about your book? Yeah, so I um, am a speaker and, you know, that's made more interesting during the pandemic. Um, So I'm doing lots of virtual events. I do volunteer work with several queer organizations and and that involve either sharing my story or sitting in council with folks who need help and various levels of assistance. And I guess the main point there is that I have come to learn that my story is my medicine. So the more I share it, the more I am healed. 
mm-hmm. and the more it can be of service to others. And so I just look for venues where I can do that. And I just want to help as many people as I can and to be of as much service as I can be. I know you've done a phenomenal number of podcasts as the guest. Have you considered starting your own podcast? There's a lot of podcasts out there these days. So it's a competitive field. There's a lot of planning that goes into it. Obviously, you can hire people to kind of help you along the way with that. Yeah. I, I think of myself first and primarily as a writer. Mm-hmm. And so what I've been spending most of my energy on, in addition to the speaking and the sales and promotion of this book, is actually working on the sequel. And I've already started that writing process. I have it all mapped out. I'm in the free writing stage right now, but I hope to have the manuscript completed by the end of the year. And it'll be another manual. It'll be very similar in structure to this book, but it'll just focus on a single topic, and that's love in all of its forms and and hopefully be of service in that way. And so I'm hoping it'll be published in 2022. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, I like that angle. I was wondering how you were going to do a a sequel, so to speak, you know, but just, yeah. yeah. So based on love, I guess you, you could actually do several books like that, focusing on one subject. Yeah. That is the plan. I've all right. All kind of mapped out. Yeah, I've got it all kind of mapped out in my brain, but, you know, I just got to make it a reality now. Yeah. Well, uh, Britt, did you have anything else you wanted to add or share with us today? I just want to leave people with one idea. I truly believe that we're all in this together, that if each of us took a little bit less, we would all have so much more and that there is no greater wisdom than kindness. Mm. Yes, we can all use a little more kindness these days. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> never the wrong choice. Never the wrong choice. Well, Britt, thank you so much for being on the show today. And, and thank you uh, for sharing a little bit about your work and, and your new book, A Gay Man's Guide to Life. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Britt East, author of A Gay Man's Guide to Life. You can learn more about Brit by visiting his website at BritEast.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews at InsideScoopLive.com. <laughs>